Good morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? Good? Good? Excellent. Uh, we've made it through the monsoon season this year, which I'm thankful for. Uh, but we are looking at Samson in the book of Judges, Judges 15, and I want you to promise me that you will not overreact to the message this morning, because the message is about overreacting, and so it would look really bad on us if we're overreacting to a message on not overreacting. And we're going to use Samson as an example of how not to behave. Now, he does a lot of good things. He's a, he's a man of great faithfulness, an example, but he also is a person who is clearly run by his emotions, and at times I think he's a bit clueless, I think is the only way to put it, as we'll see this morning. Um, but I'm sure you've heard the phrase sort of, um, don't have a hissy fit over something. First of all, I don't even know what a hissy is, let alone a hissy fit, but I imagine it's some kind of whining and complaining, which is another one. Don't whine, don't complain. Another one is don't cry over spilled milk. I never understood that one. I mean, I, kids have spilled milk a number of times, but do people really cry about that? Is that something where they are actually in tears over that I spilt my milk? Uh, and then another one, um, of course, I've never done this, I'm going to take my ball and go home. Okay, something doesn't go right for you and your mentality is fine. I'm going to take my stuff and you can't play with it anymore. Wow, really? It was a wiffle ball. And all you did was you were out. That happens to everybody. But you're going to take your ball and go home. Maybe, just maybe, you overreacted. And then, of course, the big one, all hope is lost. And you are terrified for the next day because for whatever reason things did not happen your way your team lost or your person didn't get elected and all hope is is lost and you might as well just give up because there's nothing worth living for i'm going to give you two personal examples of me overreacting and i know that's going to be hard for you to believe that i overreact but i'm going to give you two examples one from history and one from modern day a history example of me overreacting is we were moving from Milwaukee to, um, to South Carolina, and we packed ourselves and moved ourselves, and uh, Sarah did an amazing job labeling every box, every box with all the books that were in that box, then put it on a sheet of paper. So we had this stack, this binder of pages that said what book was in what box. It was amazing because at that time, I think there were about 8,000 books that she was labeling. I mean, did an amazing job. I had responsibility for one box. My box was the box that had all of our financial stuff in it. That was the box that had, you know, that was the box that if we lost, our lives would literally be over. We packed all the boxes in the U-Haul, drove halfway across the country to South Carolina, started unloading the boxes, and all the boxes were numbered as well. One, two, three, four, five. All the boxes were numbered, and as we took the boxes out, we stacked them in our rooms. One, two, three, four, five, all the way through. So it was all, I mean, it was amazing. Sarah did an incredible amount of work, except she lost a box. It was a box that had the letters AA on it. Not for the meeting, but this was the AA box. This was the box of all boxes. My one box 
that I packed, that I labeled, that I taped AA. And that was supposed to be the box I should have really just put it in the car with us while I was driving, but we had kids, and kids need room and seats, so we couldn't do that. So the box had to go in the truck. I spent 10 minutes freaking out, 10 minutes raising my voice, 10 minutes crying inside, 10 minutes figuring out what credit card companies do I have to call first because this box is lost and one minute asking Sarah if she had seen the box, to which she said, yes, it's in the other room. It's there. Oh, no, it isn't. So I emptied that entire room, put it all back, emptied the next room, put all the boxes back, and told her I went through every room in every box. No box. AA is gone. Our lives are over. To which Sarah walked from the kitchen into the room that she said that box was in originally. Miracle of miracles. Magic happened that moment because all of a sudden the box appeared and materialized out of nowhere. It was there, right in the middle of the room. Someone had played a trick on me. I overreacted that day, and she will never let me forget it, but that's awesome. It's a great reminder. And then I said, I'm going to give you a present-day overreacting story. Anytime you drive with me, you can be guaranteed to see me overreact. Anytime. I will show you how to overreact at the silliest, silliest, non-important thing in your life. I give you that promise. But we're not here to talk about me today, right? We're here to talk about Samson, but I also want to talk to you about someone else, a guy named Bo Nielsen. Now, I do not suspect any of you will know who Bo is. Bo is a soccer player that plays for a team in Germany. And if you know anything about European soccer, or basically soccer anywhere, I feel they are always overreacting. Anytime you see someone get bumped, they're, ooh, and they fall down, or ooh, and they're just, they're, you know, they're rolling in pain after getting bumped in the shoulder. But Bo takes it to a completely different level. Let's see how Bo reacted four years ago. Just wait, just wait, just wait, just wait. It's coming, it's coming. Look what happened to him. Here it goes. Oh, did you see it? Blindsided! Wait, wait, wait. He falls down. It got him so... Oh. Oh. Tragic! Let's give it up for Bo. Uh, the German papers that following weekend published his obituary. They said it must have hurt so much he must have died right there on the field. Poor Bo. But we can laugh at that and say, oh, how silly of an overreaction. Uh, but it's only me and Bo that overreacts like that. No one else overreacts to something going on in their lives, do they? Well, maybe by the end of today, looking at Samson, we're going to see that perhaps even God's greatest heroes can be clueless and overreact at the drop of a pin. So let's pick up in uh, Samson, or Judges chapter 15, looking at the first two verses, and we see how Samson thinks that he is still married. Now, if you remember from last week, that whole marriage fiasco that went through, and he ended up 
taking all of his stuff and going home. So he goes home. Verse 1 and 2 tells us what happened next in Samson's life. After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit with his wife with a young goat, just to bring her a present. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Uh, Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. So Samson, the week before, or weeks before, days before, basically in verse 20 of chapter 14 said, Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Samson left. So what is her father to think? Okay, we had the wedding ceremony. We didn't consummate the marriage. He left off in a hissy fit. The two of you did not get along at all, even during the seven days of celebration. You were whining, complaining, crying, and pestering him for the answer to the riddle. He gave it to you. He got frustrated, killed 30 people, brought back some clothes, gave it to your friends, and he left. What is, what is the father supposed to think? What is she supposed to think? Well, he's gone. So, why don't you take the next guy that comes along, his best man, Samson comes back, really upset at the whole situation, brings a young goat to try to make some peace with the family, and dad says, we really thought you were gone. She's no longer available. She's now married to someone else. But as a consolation prize, take her younger sister. She's more beautiful anyway. And Samson reacts to this, as only Samson can, starting in verse 3. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. He's threatening. He basically says, fine, but now I am innocent of all the people I'm going to murder and hurt. That's basically what he's saying. And so here's his plan. So Samson went and caught. First of all, there was nothing wrong in this Philistine's daughter, father, rearranging the marriage situation. Samson had left and abandoned her. Gone. He wasn't able to read between the lines. He wasn't able to read his mind. Was he going to come back or not? And so he's protecting his family. There's nothing wrong in what they did in this relationship. It was Samson who overreacted, ran away, stayed away, came back when he had cooled down, wanting things to be normal. Sorry, things aren't normal anymore. Things have changed. Deal with the change, Samson. And it's not by saying, fine, whatever happens to you, happens to you. It's not my fault if people die. So here's his plan in verse 4. So Samson went and caught, amazingly, 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned 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 them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines, because it was harvest time, and set fire to the stacked grains and standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Wow, is there a lot there to comprehend in your mind as far as a picture. Samson goes and grabs 300 foxes, ties their tails back to back, so there's now 150 pair of foxes, and ties them to a torch, lights the torch, and sets the foxes loose. 
There is so much in this story that we can't do. Have you ever tried to catch a fox? Have you ever tried to catch 300 foxes? Having successfully caught those 300 foxes, how many times have you been able to tie their tails together while putting a torch on their tail and lighting it? I would say that that's a once-in-a-time history event. I can't imagine trying to catch a tail. I can't catch a puppy that's five feet away from me. How am I going to catch a fox which naturally is afraid of humans and runs the other way? Oh, should I or should I not recommend this as an illustration? I, I'll be warned. Don't overreact. Next time you see a squirrel, which is a lot smaller than a fox, next time you see a squirrel, think to yourself, how do I corner this squirrel and 100 or 299 more of them and tie their tails together? Take a step towards that squirrel. See what happens. Take, take two steps. Run at it. Run at it, chase it, and try to grab it. Now, that, you have to do that on your own free will, and there's lots of warnings associated with that. But in my experiences, running towards a squirrel, one thing happens. It runs up the tree, and I can't catch it. Pretty much the same thing with every animal that I've ever experienced in the wild. Takes off running. This is not because Samson is really good at fox hunting and capturing foxes. God is using Samson in a mighty, miraculous way to accomplish this plan for some reason that only God fully and completely understands. But ultimately, we know the end of the story is Samson's called to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Philistines, and if he uses this in order to accomplish that plan, God is amazing to use something like this to accomplish his overall plan. So in mind, you have 150 pairs of foxes running through the fields with torches setting fire to everything in those fields and in the storage areas. So, verse 6, when the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timonite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came and did not overreact. No, the Philistines came and they burned down her and her father with fire. And Samson said to him, not overreacting, if this is what you want to do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and that after that, I'll quit. Then he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cliff of the rock at Edom, which is still north west of Israel. A couple of people overreacting. The father did not overreact. I think he was making a normal set of plans for his, his family, his daughters that he loved and cared for. Samson, clueless about what happens when you leave a wife not marrying her, trying to come back and take her as your wife, overreacted that all of this happened. Philistines might have overreacted by murdering, burning two of their own, not coming after Samson. And then Samson, again, just kind of flies off the handle and says, fine, whatever happens to you, happens to you, and I don't care. Well, Samson, do you not understand? He kind of started it, right? Who's the one who grabbed all the foxes and sent them through the fields? Because he was angry with what happened to his 
once betrothed wife? Samson, maybe this whole situation could have been calmly resolved by just telling the Philistines, this is going to get out of hand quickly. God, the God that I serve, is the one true God, and if you do not leave our land immediately, I know he will exact punishment. But instead, it looks like Samson is overreacting, having a hissy fit, and crying over what he has lost to the point where he is murdering people. And that response is murder from the others. Even though he had the full right of God being called a judge to relieve the people from the oppression of the Philistines, he certainly doesn't seem to be going about it in a very judgely manner. Instead, he looks like he's going about it as a vigilante with extreme ability. So the Philistines react in verse 9 and 10. Then the Philistines came up and encamped against Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. All right, so now the Philistines, instead of going after Samson, goes after the next local group of Israelites, which would have been Judah, which would have been just pretty much north of where we're at, kind of north-central in Israel. And the Philistines come up against Judah and say, hey, we want Samson. We want to do to him what he's done to us. We want to pay him back for what he's done. And so now Judah's involved. Now, how is Judah going to react to all this? Judah reacts this way. Verse 11 Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you know what the Philistine ruler, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? Oh, Judah, you have bought into the lie. Judah's bought into the lie. How? How have they bought into a lie? The Philistines are our rulers. No, Judah. God is your ruler. God is your sovereign. God is your Lord. God is your king, your prophet, and your priest. Your actions have led you into slavery and oppression. They're not your rulers. They're your oppressors. And don't believe otherwise. All of this is your doing by your sin by your refusal to follow God as your one true God, by adding idolatry to the mix and sacrifices that God has condemned. You, Judah, are to blame for your suffering and your pain. It's God's judgment upon you. But no, they turn against Samson. Samson, basically you're starting to rock the boat don't rock the boat. Don't bite the hand that feeds us. Don't frustrate the masters who are over us. Just go the flow, Samson. What are you doing? You see all of this thinking in their mind. And he said to them, as they did to me, so have I done to them. Again, this self-inflicted, self-righteous reaction. I have every right to be mad at them and hurt them because they hurt me. When in Scripture has that become a principle? They hurt me, so I hurt them back. 
In fact, Christ has to clarify for all of us when we're in that situation. If they strike me on the cheek, what am I supposed to do? Really hard. Turn the other cheek. Yes, we do have the right to defend ourselves and defend others. Not talking about that. I'm talking about this one-on-one conflict. When you can walk away, walk away. Don't stand there and fight and then take offense and try to pay back more for more. But that's what Samson did. Now, he did this in light of 3,000 men in front of him. That might have sort of scared me a little bit to say, okay, you know what, maybe I will take your advice. I'll back off here. Odds are slightly in Judah's favor at this time. And verse 12, And they said to him, We have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Israelites should be uniting against the Philistines, not colluding with them, not working with them, not appeasing them, certainly not turning over one of their own. But they are. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. And so they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up the front of the rock. So all he asked was personal safety in their company. That if he reveals himself and comes out of the rocks, that they will deal with him fairly. They said, yeah, no problem. We're not going to hurt you. We just need to turn you over to the Philistines. But subtle part of that story, they bound him with two brand new ropes. What significance is a new rope over an old rope? Stronger. Less frayed, perhaps tighter, uh, perhaps just just that extra, it's unused, so there may not be any weak points in it yet. It may not be frayed or coming apart, so it's a strong, strong binding. And so then we have, in verse 14 through verse 17, how Samson reacts. Everybody is reacting today. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. They were probably very excited, as well as just filled with anger. One, that 30 of their people were killed a couple weeks back, and now all their flock, all their, um, the fields have been burned up. Their livelihood has been burned up. So, of course, they're probably shouting in anger and also rejoicing. Then the Spirit of the Lord, key again, the Spirit of the Lord, God entered into the picture at this moment in Samson. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax, that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. These brand new ropes that were supposed to be strong and sturdy and without weakness, no frayed parts, great strength, just simply became like ashes in his arms. Not because Samson had such muscle strength that he just broke them, but because God at that moment changed those ropes into just simply burnt ashes. Nothing. God accomplished that. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it struck 1,000 men. It means he killed them. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the dog jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a 1,000 men. 
And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Lehi, which basically means uh, the hill of jawbones, or, or jaw, the jawbone hill. So the name got its, or the place got its name from Samson's action. Now, I have seen, only because of reading through the book of Judges, what a jawbone of a, uh, of a donkey looks like. And yes, it definitely is a formidable, solid weapon that if you get hit upside the head with it, I know it's going to hurt. But next to a sword or a spear or bows and arrows or even horse and chariots, I don't think that's the weapon I would choose. I would choose one of those. This is really a sad weapon. It is a weapon, and it obviously worked incredibly well, and God sometimes uses those things that are really weird and and not the best from the world's perspective to accomplish great things. Remember, David and Goliath used a stone to kill that mighty warrior. A stone. Not a sword, a spear, a stone. So God is used to using very simple things, unusual things, ordinary things to accomplish extraordinary things in his name and for his purpose. And to show, in this case, it's not Samson's ability to wield a sword that matters. It is God's Spirit upon Samson that matters. And when God's Spirit is upon his people, it can take a small, insignificant bone and accomplish great victory. He can take what we have, which we may think is small and insignificant. He can take your talent and your mind and your bravery, and he can take it and make it into something magnificent. He can take those small words that you utter in fear to someone that you've just met to talk to them about Jesus, and he can use it to change their heart and life forever. It does not take you to be mighty. He's never asked you to be a mighty warrior for him. What has he asked of you? What has he asked of you? Answer me when I call. I'll take care of the rest. Say yes when I call. When I give the word to do, do it. When I put it in your heart and in your mind, go speak to them, do it. He does not need you to be mighty. He does not need you to be strong. He does not need you to be persuasive and wise and to have all the answers and all the knowledge and to speak with eloquence. He does not need that. He does not need you to be fast. He does not need you to be strong. He does not need you to be brave. He needs you to be faithful when he says, who will go? And then our hand needs to raise immediately and say, I will. I'll go, I'll help, I'll do, but I'm not going alone. And God says, I've never told you to go alone. I will always go with you. I will always surround you with my protection. I will always give you promise upon promise. And I will give you people to walk alongside of you called the church. You're not doing it alone. You don't have to be afraid. Others have gone before you. And they've succeeded when they've relied upon me. So the story of Samson is even though he has these miraculous moments of strength, it's all given by God. And even though he may overreact 
way out of bounds, God uses every one of those things to accomplish his great purpose of freeing Israel from their enemies. He concludes in verse 18 through 20, perhaps the most overreacting moment of Samson's life. Now, I know you have your Bibles open, you're reading through it, but stop right now because we have to guess what Samson's going to do at this point. Because remember what has happened to Samson in the space of probably three or four days. What's happened? He's come back, his wife's gone, got offered another wife, didn't like that idea, decided to react and burn everybody's crops. When he realized that he did that, he started smacking people, then went and hid in a rock. All of a sudden, his brothers come to the rock and say, hey, there's 3,000 of us, they want you, and we got to turn you over because we don't want to make waves, they rule over us. Fine, I'll go, binds him up, walks to the Philistines, see the Philistines, God again, his spirit overwhelms him, and the ropes are burned as just ashes. Samson then looks around for a weapon, sees the Philistines shouting and coming at him. He knows if one thing's going to happen, they're going to kill him. So he grabs the jawbone of a donkey and starts whacking, and a thousand people die, and everyone knows that hill as where Samson took a jawbone and killed people. That's Jawbone Hill. At that moment, after that extended fight, I think we would react in, God, you are amazing. I had no clue you were going to use me like that. Your strength and your power overwhelmed me. To you be the praise and glory. Amen. May this day forever celebrate your goodness in Israel's life because you have begun to save us from our enemies. That is how I would like to have reacted. I would want you to react like that too. Do you think that's how Samson reacted? Well, if you've already read the screen, you know he did not react with praise and worship on his heart, falling down to the ground and thanking God for great victory. Instead, I think he might have overreacted here. Listen. And he was very thirsty. Yeah. And he called upon the Lord and said, you have, and I'm going to add a little bit of drama to the reading of this because I think the whininess is really important to, to get across here. You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Samson, dude, really, come on. Think about it. You've acted like a complete baby the entire time. Literally. Clueless baby. Yet God radically used you to start the process of gaining victory over the Philistines in an amazing way that people 3,000 years from now will talk about you and the Jawbone Hill. And talk about you and the 300 foxes. And they'll talk about you and some of the overreacting you've done, whining, complaining, over spilt milk. You think God led him through all of that so that he would just die and perish of thirst? Had he been paying attention in Sunday school, he would have learned the story of Israel in the wilderness. 
How many times did the Israels in the wilderness cry and complain? Oh my, almost every time you read a story about them. Oh my, we should have gone, we should have stayed slaves in Egypt because you've brought us out here and now we're going to die. There's nothing to drink. God gives them water. Oh, there's nothing to eat. God gives them manna. Oh, manna's not enough. He gives them quail. And for 40 years, God endured that bickering from the people. Oh, poor me. Oh, it's so much better in in Egypt. Oh, what are we going to do? The land is full of giants. You know, maybe that and and Samson and, and some of the things that Paul did or Peter did in the New Testament, maybe God picks for his people people who know how to whine. Maybe know how to make a mountain out of a molehill, perhaps. But Samson, he has it in spades, because this guy is, you were incredibly victorious. Yes, you're thirsty. You exerted yourself a lot. I get it. But in the end, Samson, do you think God's going to let you die of thirst? You really think that's his major plan for you, to make you do this and then die of thirst. But yet in his mind, all hope is gone. God has led me to this point and now deserted me. Verse 19 is amazing, not because of God's answer, but I think because God does answer. Because there are times, parents, grandparents, when your children whine and complain, what do you do? Sometimes I ignore it. We have a new puppy at home, and this puppy is a puppy. It's in her nature to... To, to nip and to be a puppy. And one of the things that she is learning to do more consistently than I would appreciate is she likes to bark. Okay, puppies bark. I get that. And my response is ignore it because once you give in to it, giving it attention, I think that reinforces the idea I bark, then I get attention. And so they'll learn. If I want attention, all I do is bark. So I think, I think you need to get to that point where with like, babies sometimes, you let them cry it out. So God could have just let Samson just cry it out. All right, have yourself a good cry. You'll feel better in the morning. But God miraculously even answers Samson, who is overreacting, sometimes making a molehill or a mountain out of a molehill. In verse 19 and 20, God split open a hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, he named the place Ahahakaror. It is in Lehi to this very day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. So he called the place basically spring and water from a rock. So God, in another miraculous, mighty way, takes care of his people Again, in a miraculous way, a rock splits open and water comes out and Samson is satisfied. Now, there's more to the story of Samson, much more to the story of Samson that we'll see in the next chapter. But I want to take home some lessons for us today. And I want us to go through three quick scenarios of how sometimes we can overreact in spiritual settings. The first one is, and I know that we've all experienced that, we have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and yet we have not seen an answer, and we think to ourselves, what is God doing 
What is he doing right now? Is he not listening to me? Is he not paying attention to me? Did I not pray right? What do I have to do to get him to give me an answer? Does he not know how important this answer is? I need direction. I need an answer. What do I do? And you feel frozen until God gives you that answer. But it's so easy for us to put the pressure and blame on God. God, you're not giving me the answer. God, you're not listening. And we're really getting very close to accusing God wrongly. God, God, God. Secondly, I think there's sometimes that um, we are literally beside ourselves with a decision a child or a loved one might have made. And again, we go to God and say, God, how could you have allowed this to happen? Has anyone ever had a thought like that towards God? How could you allow this to happen? When we're treating God like that in a conversation, I think we are just like Samson. Overreacting and accusing him of abandoning us. God does not abandon you. God never will abandon you. He may not give you the answer you want in the time that you want it, but that doesn't mean he's given up on you. He does not give up on his children. We give up on one another all the time. He doesn't. He is the exception to that rule that we experience. God never surrenders our relationship. He binds it even stronger with the blood of his son every single day. And then lastly, sometimes there might be a coworker, a friend, or a relative that really grinds on your nerve day after day, and you have this thought to yourself, God, I'm trying to do right, but these people in my life, really? This is who you have me with? This is who I have to work with? This is who I have to work for? Really, God? And again, I think that is just an attitude and a heart of overreacting, complaining, whining, in life, it's just a little flick on the ear, but you've got to fall down and make it seem like you've been shot. There was someone else in Scripture that reacted like this, and this is amazing. You may not think of this person, Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament during the time of the kings, but there was a time in which he was at the end of his rope, where he was incredibly frustrated in 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm going to read verse 14 here. Um, it says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So Elijah goes to God and says, hey, I'm seeing culture change around me. And there is no one who loves you. They've, they've taken your name out of everywhere. They've removed prayer from everything. No one in leadership acknowledges you. Everyone is against you. And only I, I alone, am left. Only me. And they're going to kill me. God responds to him. God responds to him in an amazingly applicable way. He says in verse uh, 15 and 16, I'm just going to read those real quick. And the Lord said to him, Go, 
return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Namish, you will anoint king over Israel. Elisha, the son of Saphat, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And then at the end of that, he says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You know what God's answer to Elijah is? Go do what you're supposed to do. Go do it. Go anoint a king, go anoint another king, and go anoint a prophet. Go do your work. Stop complaining and whining and focusing on things you can't change. Go do your work. Do it. Go do what I've called you to do. How many times our lives and our attitude could change if we took on that principle? You see, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, God created you to be an amazing workman for his creation. He created you for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I know exactly what God has called you to do every day of your life. To follow Jesus to accomplish good works, to love him and to love others. And so there should never be a time in your life where you ever get to that wit's end and you don't know what else to do. God has said, I, from the very beginning, made you uniquely ready to fight for my kingdom. But I'm weak, I'm powerless, I'm emotional, I, I'm, I, I'm jealous. All of your flaws are insignificant compared to God's amazing ability in your life. Let him work in you and through you to accomplish every good pleasure that he has, and you will find yourself seldomly overreacting. And in more times, you will be the encourager. Let's stand. I'm going to close us in prayer as the band comes up to lead us in this last song. Father, we know that when it feels like all hope is gone, when everything is lost, when we're at wit's end, when we have nowhere else to turn, where everything is aggravating us and everything is a frustration to us and everything is a complaint coming out of our mouth about everyone and everything, Father, convict us at that time that you have created us for something more than that. You have created us for good works that you have set before us. May we, Father, be people of good works and not people who overreact to the things around us. Father, thank you for the life of Samson and the lessons that we are learning. Help us to learn those lessons quickly, Father, that we might keep that beautiful relationship we have with you full of joy. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. amen.